Amen. Those wounds have paid a ransom. And so when we come to a place in Scripture like Ecclesiastes chapter 5, you know, there have been some of the uh, first four chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes where we've been able to come together and look at a, a chapter in one setting. Chapter 5 is not that way. We will tackle seven verses. And uh, at least three of these verses, um, I could for sure preach an hour. I won't, but, but I could, but I could, but I could. Amen. Let's pray and, and ask God's blessing on the preaching and hearing of his word. Father, we, we come before your word, and Lord, we humbly submit ourselves before this perfect and errant word. You breathe this out, intended for us. Lord, it is relevant for this moment right now for each person. We pray that you'd give us ears to hear, Lord, through the power of your spirit, and our hearts would be able and willing to receive that which you would say to us, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for reconciling us and making us able to enjoy a moment like this. God, now we pray that nothing would hinder the work that you desire to do. In Jesus' name, amen. So what we have in chapter 5 is a definite, clear transition in the book of Ecclesiastes. What you'll see is In chapter 5, it begins a transition from the vanity of life in the world to reverence for the God who made it. So now, instead of saying that the world is vanity, the book of Ecclesiastes shifts into this whole new focus. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the first seven verses of the book of Ecclesiastes, and you can just listen. Listen to these words. Just, we're we're going to go through them one by one. But just listen as I read. Walk prudently when you go to the house of God. Draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth. But let your heart utter anything hasty before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity, but a fool's voice is known by his many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there is also vanity. But fear God. Now the first thing that should jump out to you is the fact that up until now, have you noticed that in the book of Ecclesiastes, the word God is not mentioned? In other words, here we have in seven verses six references to God. So we've shifted from this focus of the vanity in the world unto now just the Lord who created it. So it's clear in our under the sun lives that, that we're in drastic need of recalibration with regards to how we approach God. We're in drastic need of recalibration. See, we live in a culture and in a context where uh, people uh, for, in all sorts of ways have no understanding of how to approach the God of the Bible. And God is very specific in the Old Testament and the New Testament in the way in which He is to be approached, the way in which we are to relate to Him, that God didn't set up uh, or design a system where we would just determine that we would come up with our own way of approaching Him. It doesn't work like that. And so, 
So far in Ecclesiastes, the book has shed light on the futility of pursuing meaning through work, through pleasure, through accomplishment. Now Solomon is going to show us how inadequate religion is not only to provide real meaning in our lives, but to draw us closer to himself. It's interesting that we'll have this conversation tonight because you'll see how it parallels to the things that we've been seeing through the Gospel of John with regards to the, the futility of religion. And remember that, that just as Jesus came to earth in a time where the world was stooped, or at least His people were stooped in uh, feudal religion, that's all Solomon ever knew was, was ritual and just routine. So let's look at three things. First of all, I want us to look at our worship of God. Our worship of God. Notice verse 1 says, Walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. Solomon here is talking about religion in the context of corporate worship, in the rituals, in the sacrifice, as a means to draw close to God. So think about who Solomon is and think about his uh, ability to, uh, to discern, to view, to experience, to, uh, to see what is going on. To, you know, he had a very unique opportunity to really put his finger on the, the, the religious pulse of his time because of who he was and because of his position. And so he realized that there were a lot of things going on that probably shouldn't have been going on or that weren't accomplishing what they were intended to accomplish. Solomon, who built this temple, had this unique vantage point to see all the practices done in the temple and even engage with people politically and practically in their everyday lives. 150,000 men worked on the temple. And so as they're building the temple year after year, and this massive complex, the most ornate and, and enormous complex that the world has ever known uh, at that time is, is being constructed. And then as Solomon sits back and watches, you know, undoubtedly as, as the temple's being built, people are have this anticipation and they have expectation for the way things are going to be. And Solomon gets to see what David didn't get the opportunity to see. He gets to see the way that, that things work out. So he gets to see what happens in the temple, but he also gets to see how people are in their everyday lives. You know, sometimes we get that opportunity to see that, and sometimes we're encouraged, and sometimes we're discouraged. And sometimes we realize that uh, there's a lot of people running around that are, uh, are presenting a certain, uh, a certain level of devotion about themselves, but at closer inspection, you find out that there's really a lot of hypocrisy and that they're not who they present themselves to be. Now, as Solomon looked at this, he saw that their worship in the temple was, as compared to their daily lives, didn't reflect true devotion to God. And so he's troubled by this. And so what he says is, is that we should be very careful, even in the steps that we take as we're leading to the temple. But notice he... he, he goes further than that and says they, what they're doing is evil. Now there's a big difference between saying what you're doing is ineffective. What you're doing, uh, you may have the right intention, but you're not accomplishing what you set out to accomplish. But Solomon doesn't do that. He says that what they're doing is evil. That they're actually, they're, they're going to the temple. They're following the rules. They're performing the rituals. And by the way, whose, whose procedures are they following? 
Where did they come up with these rules? Unlike the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're following the prescription that's laid out in Scripture. They're doing things according to the way that God commanded that they be done. You see, the problem here is not in what they're doing exactly. It's not in the fact that the the mechanics of what they're doing is wrong. It's that it's not being done in the right spirit, with the right motivation. It's not accomplishing what God intended. And so, in doing so, it actually becomes evil because what happens is you take something that's holy and precious and you actually are rejecting it or tarnishing it in ignoring it. I was thinking about this this afternoon as I was driving up to church and I was thinking about these first few verses of chapter 5 and I was thinking about the message this morning and I was thinking about how the danger of being close to God and that when you, when you get close to God and when the Word of God flows out upon us, what happens when we ignore what God says to us? When God speaks to us, and we, we, we push it away. We take something that was so precious and that was given to us in that moment and we push it aside. And so that's not just something that's a bad habit. That's not something that we just shouldn't do. It's not something that's inconsiderate. It's, it's evil to take something precious and then to just refuse it, to snub our nose at it, if you will. So the people thought that their regular participation in the temple rituals was all that God required. They thought that's what God was interested in. They they were sort of living out the law as if God was giving the law prescriptively, saying, these are the things I want you to do. Just do these things and nothing else matters. There's a lot of people today that think that God's commands are just prescriptive in the sense of, here's what I want you to do, just do these things. And if you do these things, nothing else matters. Well, that's never God's intention. Everything always matters to God. You see, think about the way that they thought about the temple and what they were doing. For them, the house of God was the temple. When they moved towards the house of God, they were moving towards a building. They were moving towards a place. They were moving towards a a structure. We're not people made for a temple. We're people made into a temple. We are a temple. You are a temple. First Corinthians chapter three, the apostle Paul says, do you not know that you're God's temple? And that His Spirit dwells in you. That we, we now house. That, that just as God dwelt or tabernacled among His people, now God dwells or tabernacles in His people. That the, the fullness of God, that the, the Spirit of God, God's Holy Spirit is not, is not the, the, the second-rate part of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is as much God as any other member of the Trinity. And that, that God, that manifestation of God, that person, distinct person of God lives within every child of God. And so do you think that God slaughtered His Son, gave the Spirit so that those that possess the Spirit and house the Spirit would just go through some some ritualistic activity and that all that God would cared about was that we were accomplishing things? What would that make God like? That would make God a very impersonal God. That would make God a very, uh, it would make God a, a terrible father. God cares a whole lot about every detail and aspect of our lives. So here's what this means. This means that God's more present than we like to admit. And that we're always in his presence. You see, a lot of times what happens is, is that if we're not careful our devotion to God and our relationship to God, any relationship can become ritualistic. Any, we, we can get to the place where we, we just 
you know, we say I love you before we hang up the phone and we really don't think anything of it. And before we know it, we're, you know, telling our coworkers I love you because we're not even thinking about what we're doing because that's just what we say before we hang up the phone. And, you know, because it's a, because it's a certain day of the year, we just on our way home, go by and pick up some flowers and bring them home, or we do this or we do that, or we just go through the motions, and then pretty soon you would say, well, I mean, are you in a relationship? Well, of course I'm in a relationship, but if you're not careful, the relationship just becomes about function, right? And then you lose the intimacy. You lose something because it's just... And even, even in, in, in our context, you... you because it's Sunday morning, and so on Sunday mornings you get up at this time and you do these things and you come to this place and you sit in this pew and you know when to stand up and when to sit down and, and what comes next. And, and so you just, and if you're not careful, you're just going through this routine. And that's a very dangerous place to be in. And so Solomon is observing people that are very diligent. They're not slackers. They're very diligent in doing the things that God had called them to do but they lost the meaning and the purpose of that. And so he warns them and he even equates what they're doing as evil. Now, what gets us there? One of the, most, one of the motivations that can lead us astray and can get people into the, the ditch that God's people are in here is that they don't understand that right worship of God seeks not merely to appease Him. It's not to appease God. Right worship of God seeks closeness with God. And it really is that simple. Listen, this room was filled with people this morning who come to church and their primary motivation is appeasing God. They come to church because coming to church makes God it keeps God at bay. They don't want God's judgment upon them. They don't want God's wrath upon them. They, they want God's blessing. See, whether you're, you're not wanting God's wrath or you are wanting God's blessing for your own personal gain, either way, you're just appeasing Him. And so what happens is, is that this mentality of, I'm going to do these things for God, and God's going to be pleased for me, is, is not just a mechanism of works, which it is, but it's even more than that. It turns, it turns God into this... Um, into someone who strong arms his people to get the things that he wants. Is that the God of Scripture? It is not. And so be careful. There's no, if your goal is to appease God, there will be no right worship. It's true that closeness to God brings a greater understanding of his commands. That's true. More reliance on his provision and a deeper rest in his promises. All of those are true. All of those are good. All of those are things that we should want and desire and be grateful for. But we have to be careful. Because as good and as positive as those things are, we don't approach God ready with a performance. You don't come with a performance. But instead you come with a posture ready to listen. Do you notice... Do you notice what, what the Scripture said? Walk prudently. The New Testament, the Greek term would be walk circumspectly. Think about the steps that you're taking. Think about where you're going. Think about what you're doing as you walk to the house of God, as you, as you go towards the worship of God. Draw near to hear. Rather than to give sacrifice, the sacrifice of fools. Why is it the sacrifice of fools? Because it is a sacrifice based on a wrong understanding of who God is, and He will not accept it. He will not accept, he will not accept false worship. He will not accept sacrifice that is uh, given out of ignorance to who He is. He will not accept it. Because He's not about the mechanics 
But he's about the heart that's behind it. He's about, so we need to understand who this God is that we come to worship. Now, listen, it is difficult. It's easy for us to say that we don't come with a performance, but we come with a posture. But it's, it's much more difficult to do. Why? Because for all of us, we're much more fond of being heard than we are listening. We, we like to be heard. We have things to say. We have things that are important to us, things that matter to us, things that we're passionate about. And so we like to be heard. But God calls us to first be people who listen, who listen. When we, when we come to, to corporate worship, we need to be careful because if it comes routine, then what happens is it fails to inspire this sense of awe that God created worship to. You know, remember, uh, it was about a year and a half ago, we, we went through the temple and the design of the temple and how each specific thing in the temple is designed to teach something and to represent something. And we went, we walked every, we did one entire sermon on each implement in the temple. And one of the things that you realize is how specific God is about everything in worship and how we do these certain things. And but it's all done, not so God's testing us to see, well, let's see how good they are at following the rules. It's all done for us to be in awe of the God who they're all in there to inspire awe within us, to make us just be blown away at this God that we're able to know and his, his holiness and his righteousness so that we wouldn't come casually and try to approach him on our own terms. We wouldn't bring strange fire before him. To hear. So here's the principle with our worship. The answer to the problems in the world is not to try to make, to make them right by worship, but to rightly worship the one who created the world. You see, we got a lot of issues and a lot of problems in the church and in the world. And the solution is it's not going to be made right by worship. That's not the problem. The problem is we need to rightly worship the one who created the world. You see, I would say, well, there's not enough worship in the world. There, there ought to be more worship. I think that's true. But I think that's secondary to the fact that there's a whole bunch of worship that's not right worship. And you see, the first hurdle is is. What we, don't, we don't need more bad worship. That's what Solomon would say. We need right worship. We need people to take worship seriously. All right, secondly, we'll get a little more personal. Our words, our words. So Solomon starts with the way that we worship God, and now he's going to drill down a little further. And look at verse 2. He says, do not be rash with your mouth and let your heart do not and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God for God is in heaven and you are on earth therefore let your words be few So in our approaching the worship of God we should be careful we should come to hear we should we should consider and now Solomon says now you need to you need to be careful with your mouth We'll start with the principle, and we'll work backwards. The principle here is words matter to God because hearts matter to God. It's just as plain as I can say it. Your words matter to God because your heart matters to God. And whatever comes out of your mouth comes from your heart. And so we've got to be very conscious of the way God sees, cares, and prioritizes the things that come out of our mouth. Now think about rash words. Think about rash words. They usually come from places of pain or sin. So therefore, when we're careless with our words, we've been careless with our hearts. You know when your words, when you, when you get less cautious about the words in your mouth is when you're hurting? It's when you're hurting. When you're suffering the consequences for foolishness and sin. And then words start slipping out of your mouth that ought not slip out of your mouth. And 
And let me tell you something. That didn't just happen. What happened was, before those words ever came along, you got careless with your heart. You let your heart get captivated by something. You let your heart get drawn into something. And that's what led to the place where your words are merely giving away the reality that's going on in your heart. See, what we do is we slip into this routine with God. And it's, it's subtle. And for some, it's, it's over time and and so maybe what happens is as we start praying to God, we're, we find ourselves uh, praying and saying things that we, that we think or that we know that God wants to hear. And so when we pray, we're trying to be very careful about what we're saying to God. And I think that that's a double-edged sword. I think the best way to think of it is this way. We tend to think that when we pray, God is listening with a microphone, when in fact, when we pray, God is listening with a stethoscope. He's not listening to you pray with a microphone. When you bow your head and go before the Lord in prayer, it's as if your heavenly Father has a a stethoscope right on your heart, and He's listening. And he's listening to what's going on in here, not just what's coming out of here. And that is a very important distinction. And so when you, when you are speaking to God, because if, if you get this, it will then trickle down into other things, but it won't work the other way around. We want to first consider our words rightly with God, and then they will take shape and be the way they need to be with people around us. So in verse 2, there's a warning about how approaching God can be dangerous if you're approaching Him while thinking that He doesn't care what's really happening in your heart. He cares. And so what's dangerous? What's more dangerous? Just letting what comes out of your mouth truly and honestly reflect what's going on in your heart? Or censoring your words to conceal what's going on in your heart. You see, I want to, when I'm wounded, when I'm hurt, when I'm frustrated, I don't want to pray as if those things aren't going on. I want to pray like Habakkuk. I want to come before God and I want to I don't want to try to... I mean, you're not camouflaging anything. So just tell God. Tell Him what's really going on and how you really feel and what your real frustrations and fears are. He knows how you're treating your spouse. He knows your family members, your neighbors, and your colleagues. And you better believe He cares. You see what happens? We... We go before God and we, we, use, we, use, we use careful language and we, we speak to God in what we consider to be reverently and carefully and cautiously. And we use rash words with our spouse or our children or our co-workers or you know, we, we listen to a joke or we set a joke or whatever the case may be. And, and how do you think God feels about that? And we're saying things and he's got a, a stethoscope right there on our heart. So when he says God is in heaven, it doesn't mean that God is absent or disengaged. It's a reminder of his gloriousness. You see, that, that statement of God's in heaven and we're on earth, that's not to say God is, is distant from us. It's saying God is different from us. What Solomon is doing is saying part of the problem with with our approach to worship and certainly with our approach to words is we start thinking about God as if, well, God's like us. You know, when we say, well, God understands, that's true, He understands. But don't take it so far that you start to humanize God into being like us. 
Remember, uh, uh, you know, a decade ago, there was this uh, season of time. Some fruitcake in Hollywood came up with a uh, brilliant idea, and so they, they wore a hat, and it said, Jesus is my homeboy, and then people started getting these hats and wearing these hats. And I just remember looking at that and thinking to myself, you sure you want to go there? For a million dollars, I wouldn't put that hat on my head. I can't think of anything that begs more for a lightning bolt than a hat that says, Jesus is my homeboy. You'd be better off in the middle of a lightning storm shimmying up the mast of a sailboat and waving a golf club around. He's not your homeboy. He's not like us. He's in... He's as different as we are as heaven is from earth. It is, he's glorious in ways we can't comprehend. And so we can't just, we, we get loose with words when we humanize him. When we get, we get wrapped up in all the ways that he understands us and loves us and cares, cares for us, which are good, but he's not like us. He's not. He's different. And so while God is approachable, there's an infinite distinction between us and Him. An infinite distinction. And so, yes, we can come. That's what, what this whole thing is about. What Solomon is saying is, is these people, as they go to worship, have lost sight of the fact that, you know, when, when I want to constantly remind myself when I pray, That as I come before the Lord, I'm ushered into a place I do not belong. And that I definitely do not deserve. And that I can come before God. And that the Lord Jesus intercedes on my behalf. And that that is an astonishing, unbelievable privilege. That's what happens when you pray. And this God who has an infinite distinction between us and Him invites us in. So in the next verse, the fool is the religious person who thinks that he has all the answers. You see, he is, as he's going through these, you know, our rash words, he says in verse 3, For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by as many words. I think there's a... There's a whole sermon in that. There might be a sermon series in verse 3. You see, it's as natural for a fool to use many words as for dreams to come to those who toil for pointless gain. That's what he's saying. What he's talking about is he's, he's building on what he's already taught us in the first four chapters of the book. He's talking about People who are using a bunch of words, and he's talking about people who are wrapped up in their, their toil and their achievement and, their, and, their, and, and, and the fact that that's just pointless. And what do they do? They're chasing a dream. So here's an easy way to understand it. It's overproduction is the root problem in both cases. Overproduction of words, overproduction of toil. You see, what has Solomon already told us? He said, you know what you need to do? He, he said, it's not that toil's bad. It's just that you're, you're seeking the wrong things from it. He said, why don't you just enjoy what you do? Why don't you just, why don't you just approach toil for what it was meant for and stop trying to make it into something it was never intended to be? It's overproduction of words. It's overproduction of chasing dreams and trying to achieve things that when you get there, you'll be just as empty as when you started. So here's the principle. A heart attentive to God multiplies neither toil nor words. Neither. You know why? Because a heart attentive to God comes to God to listen, not to speak. And a heart that comes to God knows that you have to be still and know that He's God. You have to rest. You have to, you have to be, you know, you, 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 can't, you can't come to God all, you know, you, you can't 
worship God with, with rash or harsh words or, or, you know, flippant or, you know, worship that's just about going through the motions. So we've got worship and we've got words. And then thirdly, our vows. Our vows to God. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. It's perfect on a night where we celebrate the Lord's table. When we get a taste of God's greatness, we can be stirred to make great proclamations or vows of how we will now live in response to this revelation. You see? The danger is lukewarmness. The danger is... You know, I've told people before that based on their position and their response to God, the best thing for them to do is to never come back to church. Because whatever you hear, you got to give account for. And so what happens is, is that when we, when we are, the, the more that the Word of God is, is fed to us, then the more the likelihood is that we're, we're going to get you know, excited about what we're hearing, and then we're going to make this proclamation in response to that. I'm going to, I'm going to make this change. I mean, this morning I was challenging everyone. I said, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Who's going to abide in His Word? And what do you think was happening? Do you think I'm under the, the, this uh, notion that the vast majority of people that do not abide in the Word of God are going to suddenly miraculously change. What's going to happen is they're going to say, I want to abide. I'm going to, I'm going to abide. I'm going to get in a D group. I'm going to start reading my Bible every day. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And then they leave. Guess what? They went home no more, made it through the door, sat down, turned on the football game, never thought another thing about God. They made a vow. And they think because... You didn't hear it, and I didn't hear it, and nobody heard it, and it was just said in their head that, ah, oh, well, it wasn't really a vow, it was just a thought. Oh, really? We think that, you know, well, well we're going we're gonna to bargain with God. We're going to, you know, God, if, if you'll do this for me, if you'll get me out of this, if you'll get me through this, if you'll, if you'll just help me through this one thing, I promise, God, I'm going to do all these other things. Now, that is a foolish, foolish, foolish thing to say. Foolish. Do you honestly believe that you're somehow going to trick the God of the universe into, you're going to manipulate Him into doing what you want Him to do based on your promise of some sacrifice of fools? What we should do is we should say, God, I'm going to obey you regardless of what you do. I'm going to obey you. Because you're God, and I'm not God. And the only wise thing for me to do is to humble myself before you as my Lord and do things your way to the best of my ability. So here's the principle. If you tell God, and really this should say, if you think. Because when you think, you're telling God. If you tell God you're going to do something, do it. And I would say this at the very least. I think all of us tonight can think of something that we... We made, we made a vow. It wasn't a formal vow. It was in our head. We thought to ourselves. We were convicted by the Word of God. There was revelation. We were reading the Bible, listening to a sermon, whatever the case may be. And we said, you know what? I need to do this. God's called me to do this. I know this is... And then we didn't do it. And I would say at the very least, repent. Repent. Whatever you do, don't just pretend 
That because you didn't make it public, because you didn't tell anybody, because you didn't speak it audibly out of your mouth, that it somehow just goes away like God doesn't know that that just happened. Don't do that. Don't delay your response to God. Failing to follow through what you know God has called you to do, don't do that. Don't do it. Listen intently. And when you when when God, when you're when you're receiving revelation from God, whether you're reading the scripture, whether you're listening to a sermon, whatever the case may be, be open to what God wants to do. Be realistic. Make sure that that for some of you in the room, the big challenge is, is to discern the difference between your voice and his voice. So when you hear that voice, that voice of your, that you need to do these things because you're never good enough, because you never, you never achieve enough, you never add up enough. That's not God's voice, that's your voice. That's your flesh. But when you hear the voice of God and it's wooing you to Him, and it's calling you and drawing you in to respond to Him. Now, now here's the warning about this next verse. So oftentimes, don't misapply verse 5 as an excuse to never commit to anything. Oh, I've heard this butchered so many times in so many ways. Verse 5 says, better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Hmm. Listen, this is just another strong Warning not to be a negotiator with God. So I'm gonna I'm gonna underpromise and I'm gonna overdeliver, and therefore God's gonna be pleased with what I do. If you think about this, oaths and vows exist because people are unfaithful. Do you know why there's a word in the dictionary, vow or oath? Why is that? When I say that word, you know what that means. Why? The only reason those two words exist in, the, in, the, in the, any human language is because people are inherently unfaithful. The reason why two people stand before God and make vows to each other at a wedding ceremony is because we need accountability because we're not faithful and we need to say things before God as a reminder to us that we're unfaithful and what we're committing to is important. That's why we make vows. We're admitting that we're by nature untrustworthy and unfaithful. If every person followed through with what they said they were going to do, what would be the point and need of a vow? You ever thought about that? There would be no need. They'd be meaningless. If there was such a thing as a community of people that, that had perfect integrity and always told the truth and always followed through, then in that community there would be no such thing as a vow, a promise. A vow, because you wouldn't need to promise or make a vow or make an oath. Whatever you said, it would just be that, right? Right. Why does God have to promise us? Because we inherently are what? Untrusting. And so, therefore, we don't trust anything at face value. And so, people have to promise to us. So, God promises because He knows that, that we're fickle and we're untrusting. That's all it's about. What, here's our goal is to be people who are what you see is what you get people. That's our goal. That's what you want to be. You want to be a person who is what you see is what you get. This is who I am. Not because this is who I want to be, but this is who I am because this is who God made me to be. And I'm, I'm in process I'm, I'm on the journey of sanctification. And, and this is how far I've come, but this is how far I still have yet to go. And as I walk this journey, my goal is to be faithful to God and to 
be careful about the things that I, I vow or I promise or as I, as, I, as I hear from God, I want to respond rightly to those things because that's not the person that I want to... I, I know I'm going to fail people. I know I'm going to let people down. So if that's going to be the case, what I'm going to have to do is guard myself and try to make sure that the, the person that I fail and the person that I let down is not the most important person in my life, right? But is that what we, is that what we live in? We live in a culture that's running around that's obsessed with what everybody else thinks of us. When what we ought to be doing is, is be focusing on our, the way we relate to God and then in the priority to which God... I mean, there's so many people that get up every day and go to work and they're so worried about what the people at work think. Meanwhile, we're just flippant and careless with the way we relate to the people God's called us to love first and foremost. Our family and our wives and our children and so on and so forth. So here's how we become these people who what you see is what you get. We become people like this when we decide that because God sees, I'm not going to live off the fact that the person that I'm speaking to does not see. You understand? What you're going to do is you're going to think about what would your life look like if you got up every day and related to people who can't see your heart, but just because they can't see your heart, God sees your heart. You see, God sees. And so if God sees all things, then who do we think we're fooling? We're not fooling anybody. And so I'm going to relate to people, no matter who you are, the goal is to relate to you in such a way as I know that God sees my heart as I'm relating to you, to people that I come in contact with. So then I'm going to be genuine and real. Verse 6 says, Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that that was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the works of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there is also vanity. And then he tacks on, but fear God. You see this issue of revelation and as God reveals things and speaks to you and how important it is that you understand rightly that, that the conversation you're having in your head is not just between you, yourself, and I, but God knows everything about that conversation that you're having. And so you don't say before the messenger of God that that was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? How do we respond rightly to what this passage is trying to get us to see? Understand that our relationship with God is not determined by the faithfulness of our worship, but of Him. It's not, the, it's not faithfulness of our worship of Him, but the faithfulness of God. It's His faithfulness. You see, He is the faithful God. He's always faithful. He doesn't have to remind you that He's faithful, although He does. He doesn't have to say that He's faithful, although that He does. He doesn't have to because He just is. And you can just, whatever he says, you can take it to the bank. So it's not like the way that we relate to anyone else. We don't relate to God the way we relate to anyone else. He's completely different. He's in his own unique category. And so as we, as we worship him, as we consider our words, as we consider our vows, as we consider, as we consider the table and what it represents, as we consider all these things, just understand that the reason that you have opportunity to consider them at all is because God's a faithful God. 
It's not because you have mustered up the, the strength and ability to be faithful. That's not what's, what's at the core of this. It's that God's faithfulness enables you and me to be faithful. Any degree to which we're able to be faithful is only because God is a faithful God primarily. His faithfulness goes first and then we then come behind Him on that faithfulness. So He's faithful to always do what He said He would do. So then what do we do in response to that? How do we respond to that? How do we consider our steps as we go towards the house of God? How do we, how do we think about the words that we use? The vows that we say to God. The, 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 the promises that we make. The way we deal with conviction. If you're going to rightly worship God, Solomon's saying you're going to fear Him. You're going to fear Him. You see, because God refuses to be trifled with, and you can't come to God to appease God. Because in appeasing God, you're building something with your own hands. Your, your desire to appease God is to protect what you've built. And so that's why Solomon says that God will tear down the work of our hands. Because it's our hands. It's not His hands. So if we're faithful to God, who's always faithful to us, if our response to His utter faithfulness is faithfulness to Him, then who builds whatever's built, me or you? And he's the builder. We're not the builder. He's the builder. 